Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Hollywood Reporter and Sundance TV's Independent Filmmaker Panel, and we have an amazing group today. Um, let's bring them out. We got John Carney, James Seamus, wherever you like, Christine Vachon, the Oscar nominated Liz Garbus, Whit Stillman. And Diego Luna. All right, and I'm gonna just go through some of your amazing credits here. So um, just I'll start with John Carney alphabetically. He's director of this year's Sing Street. Um, he is also best known for directing the films Begin Again and Once the latter of which screened here at Sundance in 2007, winning the Audience Award, and he was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize. Um, once also won an Oscar and was nominated for two Grammys for its music. Then we have Diego. He's director of this year's Mr. Pig, and it's not his first movie that he's directed. He also did um, his directorial debut at 2010 Sundance with Abel, as well as the short Nana, which screened here last year. And then we have Liz Garbus, uh, who is here with not her Oscar-nominated film. Um, she's here with Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt, and Anderson Cooper. Um, her documentary, Bobby Fischer Against the World, opened the doc section of the 2011 Sundance Film Festival. And she also had projects here in 2009, 2002, and 1998. Does that sound right? <laughs> um, and her, also her Oscar-nominated documentary this year is the fabulous Nina Simone uh, story. Not, um, I'm sorry. What Happened, Miss Simone? Um, and then... Sorry. We've got Christine Vachon. She is, she, she has several films here this year. I, I'm going to have to take a minute. Um, she's got Frank and Lola, White Girl, Goat, and Wiener Dog. <laughs> but also she has um, Carol, which was a um, huge hit at the Cannes Film Festival. And um, she is also the executive producer of 2015's Sundance film, Nasty Baby. Um, and now James Seamus is here with um, his film, Indignation. 
and it, it, it marks your directorial debut. Um, however, you may probably be the Sundance veteran of all people on this panel. You know, Christine? <laughs> As a former head of Focus Features. And um, I already introduced you, John. Um, but, uh, so let's get, oh, I'm sorry, Whit. I need no in introduction. I need no introduction. Actually, what I, I think you probably also have been um, like James and Christine. Uh, um, he's here, obviously, uh, with Love and Friendship, but... Um, well, they're very young people. Um, I came, but I started late, so I came um, in 1990 with Metropolitan. And then I came back on the jury in 95 when we gave an award to Living in Oblivion and then and, and many other great films. And then um, now I'm back with Love and Friendship. That's right. Um, so I thought maybe we could start with just throwing out the question of um, what is the biggest challenge for you guys right now in the independent filmmaking scene, making, getting a film made? Um, obviously things are changing rapidly, but who wants to take the question first? Biggest challenges. Getting a script into decent shape is the biggest challenge, I think, either for the writer, director, or for the producer. That's my opinion. Okay, how about you, Christine? You managed to get four here this year. Um, I mean, it's, I, I don't want to give the two-hour answer, which I could easily do. Uh, I guess the shorter answer is simply as, you know, and, and I'm speaking as a producer, and, and not everybody on this panel obviously is, um, uh, but we've just really had to learn how to be uh, incredibly resilient and flexible about the kinds of stories we tell and the ways in which our stories go out into the world, what kind of platforms, et cetera. This, you know, when, when James and I began, which I think we probably came to the same Sundance together, which was we produced uh, Todd Haynes' film Poison together and it brought it to Sundance. It won the grand jury prize. I never have since. At the time, I was like, how hard can this be? But anyway. Slacker. Uh, um, but anyway, you know, it was a very different landscape then, and now we're trying to figure out, like, you know, uh, what makes something actually theatrical, and um, and that's a very that question. That's something that me and my partner Pam Koffler we interrogate ourselves about all the time. Is this theatrical? Why? And if it isn't. It doesn't mean it can't still have a life and be made. It just may not be made on that path. So thinking that way is, you know, f f you know, that kind of flexible thinking, I think, is the big challenge for us and figuring out different ways of storytelling. And the fact is, for independent films, in my experience, there's a lot of down downward pressure on the budgets. And uh, that, again, forces the question for us of, you know, why are we making this theatrically and what, what does that actually mean? Anyway, I'll stop. I won't do the two-hour No, no. Uh, and actually, you raise a great point, and I can follow that up with, does something, do you even need it to be theatrical anymore? I mean, does that ever come into the equation? I mean, I don't think it's need. I think it's more still about, uh, you know, the the... In some ways, the storytelling industry is running so much faster ahead of the film financing industry, if that makes sense, you know, because the ways in which, you know, a, a movie that goes out, you know, not 
on theatrical that goes out on VOD or SVOD or what have you, and how it's perceived in the marketplace and how it does, it's just, it all hasn't quite caught up to each other. Anyway, I'm, I, I'll, I'll let somebody else. Uh, I, I somebody actually, else want to take the challenge question? Well, I, 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 you know, to pivot to documentaries for a second, I mean, I think. Uh, I think what's interesting is kind of the reception, the marketing, and the, and the, the placement of documentaries. I mean, they're, they're, when you can get them supported, I mean, What Happened, Miss Simone was supported by Netflix, which was extraordinary, um, and the film that I have here this year was HBO. It's, it's, it's wonderful. What's interesting is the boxes that people try to put them in, and I think that has to do with gender, it has to do with race, and it has to do with what kind of stories people think that they are. And I think it's, it's interesting in how you market films, and I'm sure it, you know, it relates to maybe to Carol as well, and a film about Nina Simone, in um, not having them be pigeonholed in certain, in certain boxes. And I think that, that's a challenge that I'm sort of constantly coming up against. And I think you know, with Miss Simone, Netflix has been so supportive, and, and so they were able to kind of transcend some of those boundaries, but it's something that I'm always kind of looking at, and it's like, you know, you know, we're and we're constantly poking cracks in that ceiling, but it, but it's but it's there. Okay, and how about Diego with Mr. Pig? Um, what were the challenges there? Well, I I come from I see everything from a very different perspective. I I come from Mexico where. We don't have a studio system. If you exist, you're independent. Is uh, that a good thing? It's a great thing. But uh, the problem is we shoot from funds and tax breaks. We don't live from selling tickets. So I think the challenge today for us is to find a way to connect with audiences and uh, tell them that now they matter, you know. But I think it's, uh, it's a great, I mean, it's a great time, and I see this with a lot of hope. Today there is a chance for good and bad to hear the opinion of people, you know, and to kind of shape your project knowing who wants to see it before, which is a very different way of approaching a, a project, you know, before you would shoot, you would think this would, could happen and in a festival will tell you where to go. Today is the other way around, people are searching through people's needs, what stories need to be told. And then you should knowing there's an audience, you know, and you already, you make them part of the process. And uh, it's quite exciting, I think. Uh, audiences are becoming very powerful, you know, almost bigger than studios somehow. You know, the Amazon, for example, way of doing it, it's quite interesting, you know, people voting and saying why they like it, and then they know if they're going to execute or not. That's interesting, I think, because I'm part of the audience before, before being a filmmaker, I, I, I'm here because I was sitting there wanting to be challenged by film. So I think audiences are going to take over, and that's cool. And you also have a, an interesting perspective in that you've been on the acting side of like a Star Wars movie, which I'm guessing had a slightly higher budget than Mr. Pig. <laughs> I guess, yeah, just the catering had a bigger budget than <laughs> Mr. Pig. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, it's like schizophrenic a little bit. You know, here I'm living in a condo with 12 people, you know, <laughs> that I promised if they put a penny, they would come to a festival and we're sleeping in bunk beds. And uh, and I just came from shooting the biggest film ever. I was going to say, Rogue One, probably no bunk beds, right? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> not at all. Uh, but that, that's that's the beauty of this. I still have to say... This is home, you know, when you come to this, is it's a good reminder that you belong to this community and that there's people like you out there. It's, uh, it puts your feet back on the ground. And John, like Diego, you are um, 
making movies, I assume with the help of the Irish Film Board. So it's a little bit different than the other panelists. Tell us about those challenges yeah. and benefits. Well, I mean, it's, Ireland's a small country, um, and uh, we very much rely on, on, on sort of subsidy from the Arts Council and the Film Board to make films. So, uh, so that kind of always raises a very interesting argument in, in, in sort of film circles in Ireland where you go, well, you apply for a loan to make a movie, and you, from the state, so the taxpayer, so your brothers and sisters and your friends are all sort of paying, in a, in a sense, to make your movies. Um, and there's good and bad with that, obviously, because uh, you haven't gone through the normal sort of, um, not quality control checks, but you, you, know, you make one application to the film board and you either get a development loan or a production loan, you go ahead and you make your movie, which is great. But it means sometimes that, I mean, the, the system in, in America, I guess, and in, 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 in countries that don't have that sort of subsidy there as a state thing or a tax thing, um, you have to kind of convince more people of, the, of your movie, in a sense. Do you know what I mean by that? We're, we're, but but there would be no film industry in Ireland. You know, there'd be no Lenny Abrahamson or Jim or Neil jo without the Irish Film Board. It's just, it's too small a country. It's a city. You know, Ireland is a city, really. Um, it's like Manchester, it's like, you know. Um, so, so it, it, and it's uh, very interesting, you know, the films that have broken out from Ireland, obviously, in the last while. It's kind of insane, in a way, all this Irish kind of, we're taking over for a little while, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Irish are hot right now. Um, now, James, yeah. you, <laughs> uh, you came from the other side of the fence. Um, also, though, I should have mentioned your very successful screenwriting career, Oscar-nominated um, at least once that I can think of. How many? Uh, um, <laughs> more? Okay. Tell us. Don't, don't be humble. Uh, no, but I, I uh, having been on all these different sides of the business, but I, I would, I, I would love to take issue with Diego about on the kind of positive sense of this Amazonianization of our audience and the yes. audience getting more power. And I, I do think that the the fundamental shift, which goes unacknowledged uh, in spaces like this, often is that the baseline economics that support the entirety of what's happening even in this room, aside from all the corporate sponsorships, is the fact that we are actually producing, um, uh, I would say, objects of attention and uh, objects of, uh, of trackable focus for specific demographics that then are being surveyed and, uh, and turned into data points that are, are very quite valuable. So that what we're really doing is we've moved into a situation where before you would make a film, you would present it to those who would pay for it. And you would have a general idea like, oh, people over X age or this kind of, you know, the urban audience will like this, et cetera. But that's not the business anymore. The, the business now is can you make something that will be valuable to those who are surveying you, tracking you, collecting your information, and reselling it on an ongoing 24-7 basis. As you know, that phone in your pocket tracks you everywhere. You have a unique identifier that connects your phone number to your IP address. The, your uh, net worth and your purchase history follows you around. Every given day, every single day of your life, 300 times, somebody is selling data about you to somebody else. So when Amazon wants you to live in the Amazon Prime world with a certain kind of product, it's because when you're inside that world, 
what is being produced is your activity. You are the producer. You are not the consumer. And you are producing for a surplus profit that is creating more and more sophisticated algorithms to make you feel as if you have the choice to go thumbs up or thumbs down, but in fact is narrowing every single day the opportunity for choice, even as it creates the fantasy that you have it. And that's the business that we are actually in. Oh, okay. Now, you sold your film last night. You were up all night uh, closing that deal. Does that mean, would you not have considered Amazon or Netflix? Oh, no, no, no. Look, the, the people with the algorithms are going to win. <laughs> and they are the, they're the fundamental downstream that, in, in fact, we all say the back end. They are becoming the front end, as it happens from time to time. It's a reconfiguration of capital in different modes and different w forms of production of subjects and, and viewers and cultures, right? So I'll sell to anybody. Trust me. You know, <laughs> I, and, but the fact is, this is the business we're in. We shouldn't pretend anymore that we're in another business. Okay. And, and Wit, your film, you have an interesting distribution plan ahead of you. Um, well, I, I want to keep pretending because um, <clears throat> I, I would disagree completely with what James says. I'd probably disagree with James about everything. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I still think it's, you know, the, the importance for us is making a film that, 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 that someone wants to see that, that serves some purpose. And that, you know, we, we make a film that people are happy or, or some way moved or gratified or have their emotions touched. They're, I mean, that is still it, no matter what you want to get into, highfalutin stuff about the internet. Um, you know, we have to make a film that we, we, we go to show it and people react and we, we experience that and we want to continue or not continue. Those two ideas are not at odds necessarily, are they? I don't well, I don't think, I don't know. I, I emotionally, I think it's a different idea. A different idea. You're making a film as entertaining. You want people to go out Saturday night or some night and enjoy the film, and that's what you're thinking about. But, and um, but you're just talking about a plat about seeing it in a theater as opposed to seeing it online. Well, um, I, I think we're making films for people's experiences, and. Um, and I think a lot of us still hope for the theatrical experience, but there can be also a good experience in other venues. Anyway, I, I, maybe I over-interpreted what James was saying. I apologize. But I was you guys want to take this idea? Your apology is accepted. <laughs> but they're not, I, don't, I don't see these as mutually exclusive no, experiences. They're really not. And I think that everybody, you know, these metaphors are getting mixed. And I, and I think when we make films, we're all thinking about making them for that cinematic experience of a person sitting in the room, in a dark room, not leaving, not checking their phone, and having that, you know, emotional, human, transformative experience. But, you know, whether or not more people will consume them and millions and millions of people will consume them on the small screen, it's still the same directorial instinct. And I, I don't think what you're saying. Remember, they bought that ticket through Fandango. They're sitting in a theater. It's While they're sitting there, their, their position, their GPS position is being triangulated against the net worth of the other people sitting there. I mean, these are all things that are just happening. You're talking about the directorial process. He's, you're, that's what he's talking about. You're talking about No, my about goal as a director point. is to leverage that surveillance <laughs> to the absolute <laughs> multiple effect Okay, then I you can. do disagree. No, yeah. I, 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 I take the point, obviously. Look, human expression is human expression. But you know, one of my favorite writers, Theodore Adorno, started one of his great essays uh, with the sentence, uh, uh, he who speaks of culture also speaks of administration. That you can't avoid. They're, they're combined. You're here because we're talking about the business of film. right? And it is important to remember that there's a business of film precisely because we love to express ourselves and, and to share those expressions. Uh, but it's a fantasy to think that there are, these are two different domains of human experience. I, I, I also have to say that... Uh, Yes, we live in that world, uh, and there is some things uh, that actually can be very helpful, at least from 
the world I come from, because we, we, what, we, what the system in Mexico created, it was very lazy filmmakers that had to get very good in making presentations. You know, a perfect thing with pictures and explaining everything. But then making the film was just whatever, the chance to get paid. But the, the, all the focus was on presenting it to the board of a fund or something. And today, that's over. You know, I have a friend that raised money through internet, telling people what his project was. He got $3 million. And better than that, he knew there was a, like, uh, a few hundred thousand people that were going to watch his project, you know? And there was, like, there was an audience he was connecting with without the need of anyone, in the, you know, either a distribution company or a fund or anything. And that, to me, sounds exciting because at the end, uh, that's, that's somehow freedom, you know? Okay, but um, speaking of business and just pure numbers, if you look at the three biggest deals of the festival so far all made by um, streaming giants, Netflix and Amazon. You've got <laughs> um, <clears throat> Manchester by the Sea, 10 million by Amazon. Um, you have The Fundamentals of Caring, um, which Netflix took for, I believe, 7 million, and Tallulah, which was also Netflix for 5 million. So James, as somebody who bought films, first of all, are those figures just crazy for those kind of rights? Well, on the one hand, they make total sense. In other words, what they're trying to do is create and capture a kind of high net worth, sophisticated influencer uh, audience that will then radiate out its participation in that culture, but th through channels that are controlled by those who are tracking them. So these numbers really make sense in that environment. They're not numbers that you say, oh, I'll spend $7 million, and then I hope after I spend my marketing and the, the theaters take their money, it's a $30 million gross, and I'll get it back. What they're doing is they're building a, a base that says, I'm in an Amazon Prime environment, and I'm going to stay in an Amazon Prime environment for as long as possible, but I'm going to be the kind of person that doesn't associate Prime shipping overnight with cool stuff. And so these kind of ideographics and, and psychographics are very important right now for these businesses to try to claim a place in the culture that can expand off of what's a, what are rapidly shrinking margins in terms of the kind of the over, overnight shipments and you know, the automation and the direction of kind of a frictionless economy, right? So they're trying to, they're tr they're, you know, so, so those values are very separate from the values that you would associate with trying to turn to account an investment in a movie and, an, and a paying audience. Uh, precisely, beca again, because what you're paying for and with as an audience now is your privacy. It's your life. But just to put it into context, what was the most you ever paid for a film when you were running focus features? Well, we, we financed films at pretty high budgets in the 20s and 30s often. So uh, here I famously am the, uh, am the regretful purchaser, but not, of uh, Hamlet 2. Um, but again, Hamlet 2, I, I came in, we loved the movie, we bought it for $10 million. It wasn't really a record at that time. I think Happy Texas or whatever. All, you know, what's really interesting is like now the most depressing movies make the most money here. Um, <laughs> so that's a really good trend. Uh, I'm, I'm with Wit on that. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, look, we had TV output deals. We had foreign partners. We were able to kind of get, get through there. And I, I still stand by that purchase. I, we love the film. Steve Coogan's a genius. And, um, and, yeah, we kind of netted out, maybe lost a little bit of money. But if I saw it again, I'd probably get festival fever and buy it again, too. I missed the film. Which film? Uh, Hamlet 2. All right. Now... So nobody bursts into spontaneous applause when they hear... 
<laughs> Hamlet too, but you know, whatever. Who, I liked who, it. Who sold it? What's that? Who sold the film? I, I, I can't say his name. It really makes me very no. I, I, I honestly, who would I? Was it Sinatra? John Sloss? Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Was it? It was. was it, so he must. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was Dan, right? It was Dan. Yeah. yeah but James, you weren't there. That's cool. What's you weren't that? there when the film screened. Uh, yeah, but every one of my team right. saw it, and then I, I bought it. I was at home. I had broken my ribs, whatever. It was funny. So. And I, I didn't even break my ribs skiing at Sundance. I, it's too embarrassing to even say how. A lot has been made about the Sundance audience that it's not really reflective of um, a typical audience. You have sort of 50% um, is from Salt Lake City and, um, you know, more local. Uh, a more, Deer Valley. How do I say this? Uh, Delicately, more local sensibility, um, and you then have a lot of industry people, and then you have a smattering of very rich people who like to ski. So, um, you know, a movie that can play really well here or not play really well here, it's not always how it pans out in a regular theater. But you can say that about almost any film festival that serves as a market. I mean, it's not, <clears throat> quote, regular people. And I think most buyers at this point have, uh, you know, have a have a sense, at least some degree, of of how that, you know, how that works in, uh, you know, for or against a movie. You know, I, I think it's look, it's great to have a great audience reception here. People go to a festival movie wanting to have a good time. I mean, you know, that's what they're there for. It's not the same as when you know somebody's buying their ticket. You know, and they're paying for the babysitter, and it's you know, it's an investment to go to a movie, um, and it's not the same at a festival. But I think people are pretty, pretty wise to that. So you would say it's this, it's similar to Cannes or any other festival. I mean, the reason why I brought that up not is not as many uh, hairdressers from Nice <laughs> as Cannes, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> It was Tom Bernard who brought it up with me, and he said that, you know, it's because the the, um, the Salt Lake population is more Mormon, so therefore you won't have um, good responses to movies that have, like, a lot of alcohol, for example, like Goat. Um, or These are, you know, I mean, audiences are <coughs> self-selected. You're, if you're a Mormon, you're probably not going to go see White Girl anyhow. Exactly. <laughs> so it's just, and remember, Salt Lake has one of the most vibrant LGBTQ communities in this country. And it's like, actually, yeah. and it's a, it's very like diverse. the little, a pocket of blue in a very red state. You know, it's a, it's a more diverse community yeah. than I think we give it credit for, so. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, screening in Salt Lake, I mean, I just screened my film in the 1,100-person theater in Salt Lake yesterday. I mean, that is a different experience at Sundance. It's a great experience. Don't, and it's a really, it's a, it's, really... It's a I mean, nice audience. A, yeah, terrific really nice. experience as a director. It's, it's, What's it's, that? It's, yeah, it was a great... It, you know, so it's not... You know, they're, they're, we, we do screen the films, and, you know, film scream in Ogden, and fil films do scream in other communities here. Right, and, and I shouldn't do what Amazon does, which is sort of like do an algorithm. Your profile. And, and, and profile. <laughs> um, now, have you all worked together at one point or another? Christine um, synced the first day's shooting of my film, Metropolitan, where we were re recasting. Nice. Yeah. So it's very helpful. James worked with someone I'm related to. Yeah. Does that count? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. One Roger away. And we, we worked together... James and I worked together a lot, especially at the beginning of our careers. Yeah. And, and to just a point of correction, we didn't produce Poison together. She produced Poison. I was the executive producer. We came to Sundance, and it was my first ever experience of that, where people just went right to me and said, hey, congratulations on Poison, again and again and again and again. And it was, it was 
it was kind of brutal, and we, but well, boy, did, when you're with Christine, at least, you know it's going to get clocked. Well, thank you <laughs> for saying good. that, James. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, since this is an important thing for all of us to remember. <laughs> and I, I know John and James have shared a producer, Anthony Bregman, who's here in the audience somewhere. Um, that's really a painful topic, so if we could just move on. We don't like to share. It's yeah. just kind of Anthony. There's <clears throat> enough of him to go around. No. <laughs> I can say, having four movies here, it's really hard to, to share a producer. I mean, nobody likes it. Everyone wants to be the movie. All right. I want to hear more about that. that, that let's talk. She's having some wine, so we're going <laughs> to... Yeah, Christine, you must be the most exhausted one here. I wasn't up all night. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> That's me. Okay. Uh, now, Wit, um, uh, I, I would like to hear more about bringing back um, your two co-stars from Last Days of Disco for your movie. Well, I, I always admired Rick Linklater for staying tight with his actors as they became stars. So he could um, sort of keep making movies really quickly with his star friends. And so I decided to become friends with my actors too. And um, it was incredibly helpful and they're the right people for the roles. And when I was writing um, Love and Friendship, um, the Lady Susan Vernon character, I was thinking Kate all the time. And I was working with Chloe on The Cosmopolitans and I wanted her to play the best friend, um, Alicia Johnson, and I wanted to get in some Connecticut jokes, so we made her uh, an American Tory exile in, in the London of uh, the 1790s. And so it was a great experience because um, I think when you've worked with people before and you've had a successful experience, if anything comes up, you can handle sort of the bumps in the road, the, the contretemps, you can communicate with each other. So it was very, uh, very positive. I really like working with the same people whenever I can. And, uh, and so it was, it was wonderful to work with them. And they were here at the festival and we had a great press day on Saturday and it was, it was really fun. So I'm all for working with the same people. And Diego, I'd love to hear about your casting of Danny Glover for the lead in your Mr. Pig. What were the considerations behind that? Um, <clears throat> it, was, it was an interesting thing because I, I well, we wrote the film uh, at least myself with my father in mind, uh, who happens to be there, and uh, and then the, the the casting directors. He's hiding. Uh, yeah, he's hiding, and he's no farmer, and he doesn't like pigs uh, as much as Danny Glover's character. But uh, the 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 thing about Danny was that uh, the casting director said to me, "What about Danny Glover?" And I was like, "Whoa, that would be interesting because." Uh, you know the 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 idea of 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 an African American walking through Mexico where there's not a big community. You know, you know, kids stare at them because it's it's a, it's such a unique thing to have one. But imagine this guy also walking with a pig, 150 kilogram pig through Mexico trying to find him a home. I thought it was like perfect. And I met with Danny, and he told me the whole story of his grandfather and his farm and his relation with animals and pigs. And he was coming straight from, uh, from I, I think it was Georgia. I don't remember exactly where, but he was uh, making the voice, narrating a documentary about a union of, uh, of uh, farm workers that were working with pigs 
you know? So he was connected with the theme, and suddenly I realized I was in front of the character, and, uh, and I was surprised by every choice he was making because it was so far from what I had in mind, and it was perfect and beautiful. Uh, but uh, it was interesting because the, the whole film, uh, it's, it's like a reverse angle on migration, you know? It's an American farmer trying to smuggle a, 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 an undocumented pig into Mexico. <laughs> trying to find a, a, a home for him, something he can't find in the States, you know? So it was a very difficult one to pitch, and when I tried to explain to him what it was about, he said, I understand, I understand. And he didn't let me even talk. And uh, I think he got it, yeah. And also, he, I, I got like that heavy weight on my shoulders just gone, you know? Like, he gets it. I don't know what, but he gets it. Let's go shoot. <laughs> And we had a fantastic journey. And, but I'm curious if, like, when you're trying to raise the movie for the uh, raise the financing for the movie, if somebody reads the script and then says, um, "Okay, if you can get Channing Tatum," uh, <laughs> or you come back and say, "Danny Glover." Every, everyone was very worried about the pig, you know. Uh, <laughs> Who would play the pig? What kind of pig it was going to be? Again, this this film is done with funds, you know. So. Uh, it's first or tax breaks of uh, you know the Mexican law has an amount of money they spend in culture no matter what's there right. so uh, you just have to do a cool presentation uh, about it and uh, on this one it was difficult because I had to lie a little bit uh, <laughs> because I didn't know exactly what the film was going to be we shot in order and we found the story on the way uh, so I just promised we'll, sh we'll shoot Mexico and it's a love letter to Mexico and, uh, and you guys should support it and everyone said yes so the great chance is that you can work with the actor you think is the best, not the one someone tells you this guy should be. Maya Rudolph came in, and I had no clue Maya Rudolph was going to be the character when I was writing or when I was submitting the project. It was when, when I met her that I realized she was the one. And it's such a nice... It's, that's, again, freedom, you know? Uh, as a filmmaker, you're there. It comes out of a very, like, very depressing reality, which is the third world, you know, idea of having to be paid by the government to exist. Uh, but at the same time, those who have access to these funds, and we live uh, freedom as, as no one else, you know? Because when you're shooting, you're not hearing any voice but yours. And then you execute, you finish the film, and you go out, and it's completely yours. And John, with, um, your, with regards to your cast, were you in the same boat as Diego in that you didn't have to really um, you know, listen to what some on financiers... Which, on which, well, well, on once, obviously, Glenn was my friend for a long time, and Marquetta I had met, and I had, I had cast Killian Murphy in the role, and I had a certain budget that I had generated from Killian's name at the time. And um, that didn't happen. There were date issues and stuff. So my, my budget sort of fell completely. And um, so, the, I mean, that's a story, I guess. And, and, uh, then with Begin Again, there was, yeah, there was this weird algorithm that, <laughs> that, that people, I presume you guys know about, but I didn't know about it, where, you know, a certain movie star is judged according to his or her yeah. box office, and you crunch all their numbers in, and you, it comes back to you saying what actor is worth a certain amount, which is to me bizarre, but <laughs> I kind of get it in a sense. But So I got a list of names of the people that we could make the movie for this amount of money for, and then a list of the names here, and so on and so forth, which is kind of a bit of a depressing reality sort of 
track about movie making. Does that change in the in the marketplace in in the sort of the the vision that you're describing that those figures into oh. that Amazon Prime environment or it, it act, uh, it's it's there's way. so many variations on this. So there's no good version of it. Uh, what you're talking about, Bears, this is the, this belief in data, which is a religion now, right? And it's a complete joke. Uh, that is, say, every week there's a new star-laden, especially independent film, that just falls off a cliff. Um, why is it that, you know, we won't need the star, but it just happens again and again. There's, there's no relationship between these algorithms and these numbers. What the, the relationship is, is the relationship between people who have middle-level management jobs who have to pre-buy these films for different rights and different territories, and they need to sp be able to say something if the thing fails that they at least were relying on sound business judgment and practice. So what you're actually doing when you get those lists are you're seeing lists that are born out of the fear of the person who's going to pre-buy the film either for online here or for theatrical in Germany or for TV in Italy to say, look, it had X star in it, see? Um, and that's really what those numbers are because there is no guarantee you could pack your next independent film with a pig and Tom Cruise and Will Smith and Sandra Bullock and whoever, Matt Damon, and it will could still do, it could still just flop. It doesn't, there's no relationship. It could be big, for the pig at least. Um, but that's, uh, we should be aware that that's what's yeah. happening. And this is all, this is all a way the, the, the industry realizes its own fantasies about its own knowledge, which is pretty much zilch. Yeah. But, is, but, but, that, but isn't it just a modern way, like you look at you know, movies from the golden age of Hollywood and you can see that the similar types of decisions have been made in error and the, the, the you know, the, I watched a movie the other night, Gentleman's Agreement, which Gregory Peck is the lead in and I'm going to forget his name, the guy who's blacklisted, um, but played, played, he was yeah, in, yeah. what's Gar his name? We, uh, Garfield. Garfield, thank you. Clearly, those roles should have been flipped. Garfield yeah. is an incredible actor. But I think that's more a problem of, of, of the late 40s and 50s when the system broke down. I don't think they made those mistakes so much in the 30s when they're really good executives and, and producers calling the shots. I think sure. it's when they lost confidence, precisely when it became the mid-management kind of thing. Who's yeah. Jeremy, uh, UTA's grandfather, Dora Sherry? It's when his epic, his, his period, is when they did those decisions. But I'm saying that generally... Mm. You, you make those kind of decisions based on, like, what, what else have we got to go on, in a sense, other than who's, 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 you know, who's in the picture? But even from Alfred Hitchcock's point of view, he talks all the time about how some film wasn't so good because he couldn't get Grace Kelly or he, he had to get a second tier. So even his vision of the film was affected because the big stars were great talents and brought tons of identification to yeah. the parts and things like that. Really interesting. I mean, to finish the the your question. So, in in my last three films, the film that myself and Anthony have just done, which is called Sing Street, we made a decision sort of very early on. Uh, we're going to go with unknown actors, pretty much in this film. There's there's a couple of kind of stellar, reliable actors in smaller roles in the movie, but really the main kids are completely unknown. And we kind of, I guess, we faced that sort of. Early on, we were like, okay, here's the figure. It do, it's not going to fluctuate because there's no other, there is no young Colin Farrell in Ireland that we can get to play this kid. They're going to be unknown actors. Let's make the film. Let's make the best movie we can. Let's pick the best people, regardless of anything else. Just let's pick the right man or woman for the, for the job. And we are, it, it is the, the million-dollar question about the film. Now it's like a year and a half later. Here we are at Sundance. It's premiering. How are we going to sell the film? It's still... Yeah, well, but but that's very nice of you. But but it's still, 
this is Sundance, as we, the first question, you know, how do we get that message out to the rest of the world without a Kira Knightley or without a Channing Tatum with the pig? So, so to me, those, you know, so, it, so, so to me, I'm not that really worried about, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the algorithms and Amazon and your phone, and, but hasn't that always sort of been going on just with different, in different, I mean, obviously this is a way that, it's a faster way of doing it, but isn't everybody going to ultimately say who's in the movie? But I think your way of being films is exactly the way to do it. You've got to get the best person you can and not worry about. Just bring the budget down to whatever will allow that, which can be very low. I mean, I'm in a strange place now because we have a movie that we had a good bit of money on and we didn't have cast. So with Begin Again, if I didn't get Kira Knightley, I would have had to cut my budget down to the once yes. kind of figures where I made the money for... I made the movie with my own money and bits and, you know. How much was it? Which one? Once. Once was 120 grand. Yeah. And... Euros. Uh, yes, euros. 120,000 euros. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we, um, we have actually... Liz has a hard out at 2 o'clock, and I think others do as well. I will just ask one last question, and it's like an easy one, but don't pick somebody else on the panel's film. I'm curious, go down the line, what you're... Mo what movie you're most excited to see here at Sundance? That's not your own. Is it starting with me? Yes. <laughs> His. But I just, because I just read the review of it and it sounded amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, the entire Vash on Slate. But I, that really important. I think you're gonna, there's going to be a repeated. I'd like to see John's film, Sing Street. We're both, we're both Irish filmmakers. And I want to see Witt's movie. I haven't seen yet. I haven't seen anything but my own movies yet. I haven't seen anything, and I probably won't, but I want to see all their movies, and I know I will. <laughs> I, I'll try to see the, their films, but there's one documentary. I, I think the documentaries of this festival are unique, and it's the best place to see documentaries. There's a Mexican one that I've never seen by Maya Godet that I want to see. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, everybody on the panel. <laughs> Thank you, audience. <laughs> Quick group photo.